Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome, everybody, to New Books in Environmental Studies. I'm your host, Emma Shortis. What can be learned about the Soviet Union by viewing it through an environmental lens? What would an environmental history teach us about power in the Soviet system? And what lessons can be drawn from the environmental experience of Soviet communism? These are just some of the questions motivating historian Andy Bruno's book, The Nature of Soviet Power, an Arctic Environmental History which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2016. Andy Bruno is an associate professor at Northern Illinois University who specialises in Russian and environmental history. His book, The Nature of Soviet Power, is the first to consider nature and the environment as an actor and participant rather than a passive subject in Soviet history. The book traces the history of economically driven environmental change on the northern Kola Peninsula, covering the construction of railroads, phosphate mining, reindeer farming, nickel and copper smelting, and the energy industries, from the imperial period to the post-Soviet era. The nature of Soviet power shows how nature shaped and was shaped by the Soviet system, and it sees Soviet environmental history as part of the global pursuit for unending economic growth amongst modern states. Andy Bruno, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's our pleasure. Now, Andy, I wonder if you might begin by telling us just a little bit about yourself and how you came to be a historian of Russia and the environment. Well, those stories uh, uh, have better and uh, more interesting and less interesting uh, iterations. Um, the, the, the quick part about how I came to Russian history really was that I was in college and I started um, becoming interested in history and thought I might want to you know, become a historian and knew I did not want to do U.S. history. So I decided, okay, what languages are there that are offered? I was at a small liberal arts college, uh, Reed College in Portland, Oregon. And uh, I was choosing between German and Russian. And I sort of asked someone passing by, what do you think sounds more interesting, German and Russian or Russian? And she said Russian. Um, And so I signed up for Russian and I loved it and kept with it. And that sort of it's funny how, uh, had it been German, my life would have been uh, very different. Um, so that that's how it initially started. But then uh, with environmental history, I sort of started, I had been reading stuff in Soviet history about industrialization and started thinking about the natural world and the place in it. Um, and I then sort of, you know, was like, why don't historians write more about that? And then I discovered actually they do. There's a whole sort of subfield called environmental history and realized that there hadn't been too much done on the environmental history of Russia or the Soviet Union. There were some books, but not tons, um, and started to pursue it. Um, and then I ended up, after college, going and living in St. Petersburg for a year um, while doing while on a Fulbright and doing a master's degree at the European University at St. Petersburg. Um, and there I was put in touch with uh, this whole center on environmental and technological history, 
Um, and that sort of was actually where I cut my teeth as an environmental historian, reading things, you know, by Richard White and Bill Cronin, but in St. Petersburg with Russian academics. Um, and they actually were the ones who also first sort of pointed me to the North as an interesting place to investigate. Wow, fantastic. That's a, definitely a very interesting story. And so what led you to to write a whole book then um, on the North, specifically on the Kola Peninsula? Well, I was looking for ways to understand the um, Soviet experience with the environment, especially from the perspective of economic activity and, and industrial transformation. And I initially wasn't sure what would be the best approach. Um, for a while, I actually flirted with the idea of comparing different regions, comparing a region in the steppe grasslands, comparing a region in the taiga uh, or in Tundra North, um, comparing somewhere in like more of the central forested part of Russia. But then when I thought about what it would take to do that, I realized that um, in terms of how I worked as a historian and the questions I wanted to ask, I'd be better served by doing something very in-depth in, in terms of place, but broad in terms of time. Um, so, you know, the book I ended up writing covers the entirety of the Soviet period and actually goes fairly deeply into the late imperial period and and um, <clears throat> into the Putin years as well of the post-Soviet era. Um, and I was just sort of attracted to the North through that um, sort of lens that this seemed like a, a place where... Um, you can really sort of see the scope of human activities and especially the Kola Peninsula, the region of the North I write about, because, you know, as I say in the book, you know, this is a place that had a, under 10,000 people um, at the beginning of the 20th century and becomes the most industrialized part of the Arctic um, through the Soviet experience with more than a million people um, in the region. Um, so it seemed like a particularly pronounced state case study to to examine the scope of Soviet interactions with the natural environment. Yeah, absolutely. As you say, it's, it's quite an extraordinary transformation over a rel relatively short period of time. But the book, as you said, does is covers this vast sweep of history, beginning in Tsarist Russia and then and tracing, as you said, the Soviet period and, and even beyond that. So I thought we might start in our uh, discussion of the book very much as the book does, and that's in the, that sort of earlier period, looking specifically at, at pre-Soviet times and the construction of a railroad during World War One. So could you tell us a little bit about the construction of the Mamansk yeah, Railroad? So the, no, let, me, let, me, let me go back for a second and talk about, about the structure of the book, and then I'll get into this. So what I decided to do with this book is to organize the, the chapters around different industries, but also somewhat chronologically as well. It's not a perfect chronology because most of the chapters cover a wide range of period, but sort of we start with road building, sort of the, one of the main um, connective glues that needed to exist for, for industrialization, um, turn to uh, phosphate mining, then look at the reindeer economy, then look at nickel and copper smelting, and then end with the energy economy, including the nuclear buildup in the region. And so with the um, discussion of railroads, um, 
and the Mormons Railroad. I mean, in one sense, this is a particularly arresting story in and of itself because this is a railroad that's built up to the you know north of the Arctic Circle uh, hastily during World War One. Um, after uh, the Russian Empire has ports cut off um, uh, during the war, and it's built with largely POW laborers, many of whom get sick and perish, um, and is very much a sort of militarized campaign to hastily build it up. Um, and this, you know, in and of itself, uh, seems quite similar to some of the gulag projects uh and other sort of egregious moments of uh stalinist industrialization that you see later where you know there's sort of short-term expediency uh predominating over uh a longer term perspective now in terms of the national environment though the way that i sort of thought about this um well, there's a few things. First off, I, I, I do make these sort of connections between some of the ideas about the natural environment that emerge in the pre-Soviet period with what gets expanded into the Soviet period. Um, and particularly, I look at the ways in which there's these sort of two competing relationships with the natural world that emerge. One is a sort of boosterist um, idea um, they keep talking about northern nature as a treasure chest that we're going to colonize the north and it's going to open it up to these new vistas and liven the place um, and that it's sort of going to be mutually beneficial for the environment and the people who are going to come to live there. Um, that coincides with um, another idea which is much more the sort of militaristic idea that nature is an enemy that we're going to do battle with and we're going to defeat and we're going to conquer. And this sort of uh, uh, approach becomes dominant when they are actually building these projects. Um, whereas the other approach is much more dominant when they're sort of just planning and talking about it. Um, and so these sort of two ideas um, is something that I end up calling this sort of dual perspective on the natural environment. And they emerge in the imperial period. But then one of the things I do throughout the rest of the chapters in the book is trace how they sort of shape what I think of as the as, as what becomes the Soviet note uh, approach to nature, which sort of combines these two sort of nature as some uh, exploiting nature as something that leads to mutual improvement and exploiting nature as something that is about conquering and, and, and destroying and, and sub making the natural environment submit. And I think that these two sort of ideas are, are, you know, sort of vacillate in time and become more pronounced and less pronounced at different, at different moments. And are finally, and they're related again to the actual experience of, uh, of working with the environment, essentially when the environment uh, is obstinate, when the environment sort of creates problems for these industrial plans, you get more of an aggressive rhetoric towards the environment. 
Okay, and and I guess it also challenges that sort of traditional periodization of Russian history into into pre-Soviet and and post-Soviet, which which is also really an interesting ap- approach from yeah, environmental. Yeah, I think very history. much that the sort of you know there's there's reasons to under to look at the different the distinctiveness of the Soviet project, but a lot of the sort of um, there's a lot of continuities across the 1917 divide in terms of environmental history uh, in in Russia. Absolutely, and and it sounds like there's also some some continuity with the local experience. I mean, you mentioned that the railroad was built by POWs, and it was later also so built by forced labor. Could you tell us a little bit about the the experience of of those people building the yeah. railroad and how they grappled with yeah, the well, environment? I mean, it's a very sort of interesting experience because. Um, I mean, the, the POWs who come up, a lot of them get sick. Um, a lot of them sort of are able to make a, uh, uh, cases to international governments after the war about how badly the Russians had treated them and things like that, much more so than the, uh, gulag prison, or at least much more able to get out in the public than, than the, the prison laborers during the Soviet period. But they both of these groups I think were held together by a sort of similar experience where by the state exposed them to natural hazards. Um, and this is, I think a key part of a sort of social relationship with the natural environment that, that defines these earlier industrial projects in the Soviet union. Um, uh, as I sort of talk about later on in the book, you know, the sort of aggregate environmental damage uh, the destruction of forests and all of that is less pronounced during the Stalinist period, which ends in 53, than it is in the 1970s, for instance. But the human experience of being exposed to the natural environments and exposed to natural hazards, everything from the cold to uh, inadequate food to avalanches, is much greater in these earlier projects. And there's a continuity between the sort of experience of forced laborers during the Mormons Railroad and then during the uh, phosphate mines and and um, other projects um, later on, nickel mines and other projects later on. Mm-hmm. And and in terms of the railroad, then you said that the people building the railroad have this particular encounter with nature and the environment. What does what does them building the railroad? How does that affect? The natural environment going back the other way. What what impact does a railroad have on the environment? Yeah, well, uh, so I mean, they do things like they, um, you know, uh, fill in marshes and drain other part, uh, drain other parts of marshes. Um, they cut down forests um, all along the road. Um, so there's a sort of hasty destructiveness in the territory immediately surrounding the. Um, the railroad line. What's what then happens though, um, especially with the Mormons Road, is that in the 1920s it becomes what they call a uh, transportation industrialization colonization combine. And what it essentially means is that the vast majority of the forests on the Kola Peninsula are allocated as sort of a subsidy to the railroad administration. And the railroad administration then sort of becomes the main sort of uh, spoke for, uh, uh, you know, the timber industry, 
the fishing industry and all of these things. So it leads to this extra industrialization. Um, just to go back a little bit, though, the, I think the, the distinctiveness between sort of that colonization approach that you get in the 20s and what the actual happily actually happens to the surrounding environment during the building of the railroad and during the building of some of these other railroads, uh, the sort of connection lines in the 1930s, uh, is that the sort of ones that are built in this more hasty, these hasty sort of militaristic moments are the ones where you get this sort of you know, destructiveness and wastefulness where, you know, you just, they just cut down a bunch of forests and leave it there to rot as opposed to sort of a longer term plan about more extensive uh, harvesting of natural resources. So there's, I think, a distinction between uh, extensiveness of environmental destruction, which is much more sort of occurs in the Soviet Union when they're being less hasty um, and the more immediately wasteful um, uh, uh, damage to specific local localities, which I think you get um, with the, these road building projects um, during the war and uh, during Stalinist, the Stalinist industrial push. Okay, and and if we continue on the, the Stalinist industrial push, I suppose the, the next section of your book turns to this first major industrial project that happens under Stalinism, and that's phosphate mining on the peninsula. So could you tell us a little bit about that and how where that falls on this spectrum of, of hasty and, and not so hasty um, environmental yeah, I mean, damage? It, well, it very much, the initial push is very much within the hasty sort of line. So what happens is... Um, uh, and I'm going to give a little bit about sort of the background on Soviet history here. Um, after the revolution in 1917 and the Bolsheviks come to power, they fight a civil war. Uh, and then there's this period in the 1920s called the New Economic Policy, where they allow, re-allow markets to emerge in the country and uh, and sort of, you know, step aside from the immediate plans to build communism. Essentially, there wasn't a world revolution, and so they, they they take a new approach. By the late 1920s, for a variety of reasons, um, Stalin, who by then is, you know, um, uh, in charge, decides to push forward with a dramatic plan to industrialize the country in short order, while also uh, taking away the autonomy of the peasantry and um, putting them under more strict state uh, auspices by forcing them into collect the, the farmers into collective farms. This is all sort of done with this idea that, you know, with the first, with what they call the first five-year plan, they're going to do it the five-year plan in four years, and it's going to help Russia um, advance a, you know a century a, a, a century of industrial development in ten years, right? So it's a sort of complete breakneck model. And in during that time, you one of these projects that occurs throughout the country is to create a self-sustained um, phosphate mining and processing operations 
on the Kola Peninsula in a place where there had been no city before, no uh, real big settlement. There was a small settlement somewhat nearby um, uh, because of the railroad, but but that even that was fairly new. And so they come up with these sort of grandiose plans to build this enterprise that they call Apatite, the mineral, the phosphate, phosphorus mineral they're, they're, they're extracting is called Apatite. Um, and they do this with a combination of all sorts of lofty rhetoric that they're going to build this new sort of socialist city uh, in the far north. And it's going to sort of allow workers to enjoy the outdoors and be in accord with nature and all of this type of stuff while uh, relying primarily on this group of forced peasant migrants um, who were forcefully exiled to the far north to populate the city. So you go from, you know, in short order, you get, uh, you know, uh, 30,000 plus people um, in this place where, you know, basic construction is still going on. Now, the way I analyze this entire story is it builds off um, some scholarship about the Soviet Union that emphasizes that, you know, one way to look at Stalinism is to think of it as as a, trying to build its own specific type of civilization. And I sort of play with that and go, well, actually, it's also not only a civilization, but an ecosystem. There's an entire sort of logic of environmental relations that uh, we get here. And it's characterized above all by these dual impulses that are held at the same time, that we're going to have, um, you know, uh, harmony and conquest of nature kept together at the same moment at the same time. Um, and I think you see that in, in all sorts of ways of how these um, uh, phosphate works get arranged, how the labor supply is treated, um, how then it, this industry becomes a sort of spoke for the further development of the mining sector on the Kola Peninsula. Okay, so again, this it's really dramatic and, and rapid transformation. And how do those, you said, I think 30,000 people are, are forced to move um, to, to build up this new mining uh, industrial project. How do they, again, grapple with this new environment and, and how do their actions shape the uh, I mean, and, okay, so again, you know, uh, well, one thing is it's not, they weren't all forced laborers. There were recruited laborers, but the majority of them were were these um, forced peasant migrants called special settlers and the sort of uh, official policy parlance. Um, and they come up there and they, again, are exposed to the natural elements. There's a huge increase in disease and mortality among them. Um, they often live in tents for several years uh, and these sort of barn-like structures that they put up um, they uh, face uh, hygienic problems through from you know there not being uh, a clean supply of water or separate or a, a sewer system that separates wastewater from uh, 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 drinking water. Um, they also suffer the consequences of the sort of immediate pollution. So. For instance, there's a place that they fish um, to supplement their diets, and within uh, a couple years, the uh, the waste 
the tailings that are from the new industry uh, essentially kill off the fish population within that river, the White River. Um, they also, um, some of them are also exposed to avalanches. Um, and, you know, there's uh, one sort of really big avalanche. There's several, there's many sort of avalanche deaths, but there's sort of one big event where, uh, you know, almost a hundred of them die one night um, because the they put up housing right under this avalanche prone mountain. Um, so there's this sort of exposure to natural hazards, um, and including the natural hazards that result from uh, from pollution, uh, very much defines the, the laborers' experience uh, during the Stalinist push here, industrial push here. The next section of your book turns to to the issue of uh, living things, I suppose, other living things um, than humans, reindeer. But it also speaks, I think, to the to how these um, this population boom affects the people who were there before. You mentioned that there were about 10,000 people, I think, populating the area before this big push. So so how does um, reindeer, I guess, illuminate this the experience of, of people who were there before and their encounter with this yeah, new so, Soviet power? Um, yeah, this sort of look at, at reindeer, very, very much as you said, it, it gets to the living things on the peninsula. It gets to questions closer to, more closely related to agriculture, because they do sort of experiment with growing crops, but the main sort of one of the main realms that agricultural uh, uh, work happens is through the sort of Soviet development of reindeer herding, and it also gets at ethnic relations. So, you know, again, of about two thousand Sami um, lived on the peninsula before any of this um, development started occurring. Um, and their story is actually quite distinctive in, in a lot of ways. Essentially, um, but unlike the Sami who live in um, Norway, Sweden, and Finland, the Kola Sami had really mostly hunted reindeer until the late 19th century. They kept some animal domestic reindeer as like draft animals. And some had small uh, herds, but for the most, for, but they were much more hunters than they were herders. This starts to change when another ethnic group from Siberia, the Komi, migrate over, um, and they have a different sort of model of, of interacting with reindeers, with reindeer, which depends on the sort of large scale pastoralism. Um, the the politics then of sort of animals and ethnic groups uh, in the Soviet period becomes very complicated. And on the one hand, the Soviet authorities essentially try to force the Sami to adopt Komi ways. They sort of are like, well, the Komi model is, is a, is closer to the model of industrial reindeer herding that we're going to promote. Okay. And so you have all sorts of ways in which um, the 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 Comey model gets put up there, and then uh, the Sami sort of develop a pastoral economy, um, a Sovietized pastoral economy, um, through the sort of implementation of this model. 
um, where they keep large herds, they um, uh, have them in collective farms, there's production quotas. Um, later on, the sort of in the 1950s and 60s, there's a sort of more statist, uh, centralized uh, uh, idea that we're going to even, as, as this is occurring as the military is building up in the region, that we're going to confine these reindeer, these uh, domestic reindeer to uh, smaller and smaller territories and, sm- and fewer and fewer uh, institutions. And they co- uh, combine all of the bunch of the collective farms into two places. Um, this whole process leads to there's this town called La Vosera, which is now sort of seen as the Sami center on the Kola Peninsula, but was really in many ways a Soviet creation. The, I mean, the, the settlement exi- pre-exists, but the the buildup of it, centralization of of indigenous people into it, sort of through the process of um, of Soviet policies. Um, this whole chapter, though, also does get at the ways in which um, the knowledge, uh, the ecological knowledge of the Sami. Um, very much sort of played a role in this process, played a role in in, in shaping the out, some of the outcomes of the industrial push, um, and as well as how some of the sort of reformers and scientists, the sort of people more representative in the Soviet state, had to rely on this type of um, more on-the-ground knowledge, what I call sort of sentient eco- ecological knowledge, um, as the um, the, the uh, pastoralists themselves, yeah. Which which, as you say in the book, complicates I think our understanding of of Soviet power as as this kind of all encompassing, um, overarching organization. It, it's it's more complicated than that, I suppose. Yeah, you see, you see, you see how both indigenous people sort of end up shaping it. And also um, another part of the story is how reindeer themselves shape it. There's a whole, a whole big part of this issue is that you have this sort of simultaneous campaign that occurs at a nature reserve to protect wild reindeer. And these sort of interactions between domestic reindeer and wild reindeer uh, uh, depend on, on the ways that these animals behave. And that actually ends up having an impact on the way that the Soviet Union promotes reindeer herding. Could you maybe explain why there is this effort to preserve um, so-called wild reindeer? Because that, that's sort of surprising, I, I think, from what we know about, or what we yeah, think well, we know about the Soviet Union. Um, I mean, it's interesting. There, I would say that sort of uh, some of the earliest uh, – works of Soviet environmental history very much sort of put out this this campaign. But what the Soviet Union does is they create this sort of system um, of nature reserves that are called Zapovedniki. Um, and it begins, again, it begins before the Soviet period. There's a couple of them that, be, that occur before, that are formed before the Soviets, uh, before the Bolsheviks come to power. Um but then is very much sort of expanded by the Soviet state in the 20s. And these nature reserves are, are di- di- distinct from sort of national parks in the U.S. and some other places in that they are 
initially envisioned as these places that are going to be kept in perpetuity to completely protect a sort of specific type of representative ecology. Um, and the, 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 the idea of sort of exclusion beyond the scientists is, is, and the uh, security guards is quite extreme. Um, so within this, you get these scientists, uh, within this sort of push for these new nature reserves, you get these scientists up on the Kola Peninsula who mostly are kind of coming partially in connection with these industrial projects that are beginning to be planned in the 1920s and say, hey, we actually have, there's this population of wild reindeer here. It's dwindled down to a fairly small number. Um, we need to have a nature uh, reserve to help protect them. And they're able to successfully campaign for to create what's called the Lapland Nature Reserve um, and are actually quite successful with restoring the wild reindeer population. Um, I, I can talk more about this um, story uh, as it relates to the um, nickel industry that emerges, but I think it's uh, important to sort of see this as 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 very much in line with the part of the story that's the Soviet story that's about sort of the harmony with nature. That it's there's sort of the idea that you're going to, for instance, have a wild reindeer reserve and a notoriously destructive nickel smelter in close proximity. You know that actually that sort of makes sense from the perspective of the Soviet approach to nature. Um, and that I think is, is is one of the things that we see with the the story of these nature reserves. Yeah. Okay. That's fascinating. And as you say, they're they're happening very much at the same time. And that that the following part of your book then does indeed go on to address this issue of, of the nickel and copper smelting industries. So can you can you talk about how those industries became, I guess, a kind of standard run of run of the mill polluters that that we would expect to creating what in the book you call environmental tragedy and you, you kind of alluded to just then when you were talking about the, the reindeer conserves. Well, I mean, How did it, that happen? So it's, it begins with the same sort of push um, to, uh, to industrialize the region um, that occurs with the phosphate mining. Um, but for the nickel, you know, the, the, the sort of discovery of deposits and all that occurs a bit later. So the research is sort of tied tied to the same sort of approach, sending geologists up, starting to survey these lands. And then in the middle of the 1930s, they uh, uh, decide to create this uh, nickel mines in what's called uh, the new town. Uh, they built another new town called Monchegorsk, and it houses what's called the Savera Nickel Combine. And this is, of course, right just to um, a little bit north, but mostly just to the east of the Lapland Nature Reserve. Um, and they build a, they, they begin to build it in the 19, middle 1930s. They start with gulag labor. Um, it actually is quite delayed because it's not following the sort of really hasty push of the first five-year plan. It's a little bit different. But then once... Um, you know, the World War II breaks out and 39, not the Soviets in World War II, but in Europe, um, they 
push, they, they realize that war is likely coming and they put this under the secret police, under the NKVD auspices and really get the, these nickel mines going. Um, the sort of longer story, though, then, is that, you know, after the war, they rebuild because it gets destroyed. Um, and they also take over this other nickel mine um, in the far in the far corner, right by Norway, um, the Pechinga nickel combine, and rebuild that. And then you get this sort of large nickel and copper smelting industry that develops on the Kola Peninsula in the uh, 50s and 60s. Now, this industry up through the late 60s is dirty. It's bad. It's nickel smelting pretty much most places that it occurred in the middle of the 20th century caused a lot of damage, um, had a lot of sulfur dioxide. Um, the heavy metal pollution was, was, was quite extensive. But if you were to look at the by the late 60s, if you were to look at these nickel ind- this nickel industry and compare it to the Sudbury mines in Canada, for instance, it wouldn't look that bad. It'd be like, well, this is what happens when a country develops an industry, uh, a nickel, nickel works. It's in the 1970s and 1980s, though, where the sort of situation changes, where along with the sort of rise of environmental consciousness um, throughout many parts of the world, the Soviet Union, on the one hand, is sort of speaking more lip service to environmental protection, but also uh, trying to um, uh, continue its post-war growth by producing more and more. And that leads to more and more pollution. So what happens is these nickel mines, sort of nickel uh, factories, sort of cross certain thresholds, the sulfur dioxide pollution from these plants, you know, more than doubles um, uh, in a very short period of time in the 1970s. And this leads to extensive ecosystem destruction, sort of completely denuded zones of forest downwind from the smelters, um, poisoned water rays, the, the line that sort of struck me when I f- was first becoming interested in this is, you know, if you ever want, it was in it from a Lonely Planet tourist guy that said, if you ever wanted to visit hell, Machigorsk is pretty close because of how sort of destroyed the, um, the environment was sort of nearby. Now, my whole sort of argument about this, though, is that it really, we need to pay attention to that context of the 70s and 80s to explain sort of Soviet ecocide of the late Soviet period, that it's not simply a legacy from the earlier periods of history, that that really there's a lot of contextual factors at play um, in the late Soviet period that sort of lead the Soviet Union to be particularly bad for uh, in terms of pollution over the last its last several decades. I think it's interesting, though. I think when people are confronted with the, the issue of the Soviet Union and pollution or even the more dramatic term that you used, ecocide, it, it leads them directly to, to nuclear power and the, the use of nuclear energy, which is the subject, of course, of the, of the final section of your book. So could you tell us a, a little bit about the, the use of nuclear power on yeah, the well, peninsula so, in the north? You know, I mean, this it begins sort of on the peninsula. Well, there's two sort of trajectories. Um, 
one is that it uh, they go so the Kola Peninsula, while having all of this mineral wealth, had no coal, and um, uh, and the, the peninsula itself doesn't have hydrocarbons, though they've found some uh, off the uh, off the coast. So their solution to finding energy, well, first off, of course, importing coal from other parts of the country, and but they also created this whole hydroelectric network. That sort of really was getting to its capacity by the early 60s. And at that point, um, one of the things they do is start to invest in a nuclear power plant, which comes online in the early 70s. That more than takes care of the energy needs of the region. So that sort of ends this sort of question about there being enough electricity for the industrial operations. Um, now, this is the Kola nuclear power plant. It's not the same model as Chernobyl that they use, um, but it still has sort of a lot of, um, or it produces a lot of waste and it has a lot of uh, risks involved with uh, its continued operation. There's sort of more scary story in some ways though occurs with what was happening simultaneously and it really actually predating it which was the buildup of the military uh, and civilian nuclear fleet so a whole sort of um, uh, northern fleet of the soviet army becomes based in a town called severomorsk which is just built which is again built uh, from scratch just a bit north of mormonsk um, the capital city of the region, and then they uh, uh, come up with this whole fleet of nuclear submarines and nuclear icebreakers. And what they do with the, the the waste material from these is they some of it they dump directly into the ocean in violation of international law. Some of it they put on these storage boats or or facilities on the Kola Bay, very much near. Uh, uh, Norway, and uh, you know, essentially, this becomes a an, a, a very sort of problematic environmental hazard um, and and human health hazard because there's all of this sort of nuclear waste with fairly long half lives being stored in unsafe containers along the Kola uh, along the Mormon coast on the northern part of the Kola Peninsula. The one other sort of factor, uh, um, sort of tidbit about this is, you know, by at its height in the late '80s and early '90s, the Kola Peninsula had something like a fifth of the world's nuclear reactors because of all of these nuclear submarines and and icebreakers. Wow, that is an extraordinary statistic. And and do these? Uh, I mean, obviously they have a long, a very long half life, as you said. But do these? They they're Still present in so there's been after the um, amelioration efforts. Um, a lot of the submarines have been decommissioned. Um, there have been cleanup efforts, um, including at the Andreev Bay and the Lepsa um, uh, uh, ship. Um, these have often been funded by the Norwegian government, um, who sort of, and some of it was actually funded by the U.S. government as well. Um, and so these have, you know, reduced the risks. But there's still materials that are that are kept up there um, that 
uh, you know, don't necessarily have a full long-term solution. And the Kola nuclear power plant, um, despite objections from environmental groups, has been renewed, has had like the, the uh, life of its react of its currently existed and, and what's often considered outdated reactors extended um, sort of multiple times. Um, you know, what's going to happen uh, when it reaches the next deadline? I'm not sure. Um, there are definitely plenty within the uh, Russian nuclear industry that would love to just build up new nuclear power plants. But, you know, that we're getting into sort of questions about future energy economy, which I, I, uh, I don't want to pr- uh, prognosticate too much on. That's fair enough. But how do the people, uh, you, you spoke obviously of, of the risks of all this, how does the by now booming local population live with well, these risks? I mean, how do they there, You know, there was, there's sort of mixed feelings about it. I mean, you know, uh, there's a, you know, in terms of the residents themselves, some of them have, you know, the attitude, well, everywhere there's risks and we can live with these ones, right? At least we don't have, um, you know, an oil spill here, or at least we aren't having earthquakes or hurricanes or things like that, right? This is, you know, that that's an attitude you get here expressed. Um, another way, though, to, to measure it is, though, you know, this region has had uh, an incredible decline in population since the end of the Soviet period. I mean, most of it was in the 90s and a little and, and early 2000s. Um, but it's so, but it's still not growing again, um, at least from the last time I've checked. Um, and so, you know, one of the ways that people dealt with the risks is leaving. Yeah. Okay. I, I mean, I guess that's that's understandable. Now, nuclear energy, of course, isn't isn't the only form of energy that's being um, extracted and, and used on the peninsulas. What other forms of energy are being used? Yeah, well, I mean, they, they did everything they could. On the so, I mean, there was, you know, as I mentioned, they built this entire mm-hmm. network of hydroelectric dams, which, you know, remakes the sort of surface of the peninsula in terms of, you know, um, creating reservoirs where, where small rivers existed, controlling and regulating the flow of the rivers. There's a lot of small lakes and small rivers in the peninsula, which is why they sort of have this hydroelectric network part of the reason they decided to develop it. Um, But, you know, at other points, especially in the earlier period, they were desperate for anything. So they would sometimes they would, you know, cut down the forest for not for timber, but for 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 firewood. Um, They would had all of these elaborate programs to extract peat um, and uh, dry it and use and uh, use it in uh, 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 smelters. Um, they also, of course, then did import a lot of coal. Some, much of it from other parts in the Arctic, such as Varkuta, um, which was a gulag camp uh, further over uh, in Siberia, um, or northern Euros, um, uh, and, uh, and Spitsbergen, uh, Schwabard, um, which is uh, uh, actually owned by Norway, but the Soviet, Russia and the Soviet Union maintained uh, uh, mining rights on uh, Berensberg. Um, so some of it was coming from there. Um, there is a whole sort of also transition that uh, oil um, that starts to occur 
along the same time that nuclear um, uh, power is coming online. Um, and that more has to do with the sort of national energy economy because most of these resources at first aren't coming from the Kola Peninsula. But by you know today, there's a whole sort of um, boosterism about offshore oil drilling. This is, of course, something we hear a lot about in the U.S., but the, the idea that um, they are going to uh, start drilling under uh, the Arctic Ocean and then have these oil uh, resources sort of up, mm-hmm. you know, brought into Mormonsk and then shipped out uh, has, 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 you know, been a sort of large part of this. And the idea that, of course, this is going to be facilitated by global warming because there'll be sort of longer periods of time of the Arctic being ice-free and thus possible to to do these projects. Now, this, you know, I mean, the one other thing I'd add about this is this was sort of a real big deal um, for a while, the sort of boosterism about it. The fact that uh, there's been this explosion in natural gas and the national natural gas sector in the U.S. and elsewhere through fracking has sort of put a lid on it a bit because the economics stopped making as much sense. Okay, that's a, a really interesting point. And it, again, complicates what I think is sometimes a, an oversimplified story. And it, it leads me into a, a final question, I suppose, which is a, a bit of a bigger question. Um, and it's one that you ask yourself, I think, throughout the book. And that is, what lessons, if any, do you think can be drawn from from the environmental experience of yeah, the Soviet, I mean, of Soviet communism? There's, I you know, this is, of course, something I, in some ways, I still grapple with after writing the book. But, uh, <laughs> um, you know, because I, when I look at this, you know, there's certain things I see that went wrong, but for the most part, that were sort of specific to the Soviet Union. But for the most part, I see this as sort of the perils of um, the Anthropocene, the perils of the sort of dramatically increasing the scale of human economic activities. And what the Soviet Union did was find another sort of non-capitalist path to pursue massive industrialization. So, you know, I guess one sort of lesson, it would be don't, you know, for sort of people on the left, don't assume that, 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 socialism is going to get us to an environmentally sustainable or environmentally uh, non-degradating um, uh, future. Uh, I don't think that it's impossible, but I think that that's sort of uh, should not be taken for granted. Um, but I also, you know, so, so part of it is, is you know, I, when I, the lesson I look at when I look at this is sort of the, 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 the environmental, it emphasizes really the environmental perils of growth economies, um, regardless of their shape. The other thing that I lesson I take from it, in some ways it's even more pessimistic, I guess, but, um, you know, one of the things I really sort of insist upon in the book is that, you know, interactions with the environment really sort of shaped the Soviet project um, throughout. And that means that the environment sort of and nature can sort of influence and shape and be part of, of human endeavors. And that's not something that we're going to escape. The sort of fantasy of escaping nature that you saw in the Soviet Union is not one that 
is worth embracing today through sort of new forms of technophilia or geoengineering or these other sort of ideas that 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 people are going to sort of somehow find their way out of being embedded in the natural world. And so that sort of continual potency of of nature is another lesson that I sort of think the Soviet experience helps underscore. Yeah, absolutely. I think they're they're really significant lessons and and certainly very timely. And speaking of, Andy, I've taken up an awful lot of your time. Um, So I'll finish up with a a final question that we like to ask all all of our guests. And that is, what are you working on now? Well, I'm going to answer this question two ways. Right now, right now. So I'm actually working on this sort of um, article I have that's actually looking at uh, environmental subjectivities um, in the Soviet Union and sort of the ways that interaction with the environment, either through environmentalism or through sort of more mundane, everyday interactions with nature, shaped and contributed to the ways that people understood who they were as individuals within the Soviet system. So that's sort of a smaller project that one is based on the research I've done, did for the first book, but sort of taking a more biographical approach of several of the people who were involved in it. Um, and then I'm also sort of very much in the midst of research on the second book project that is looking at the 1908 um, Tunguska explosion over Siberia. And the this is uh, an explosion that happens in a very desolate place of Siberia. And then in the 1920s, they assume that it's a meteorite, go out and try to find uh, remnants of the meteorite. They never find it, uh, those remnants. Uh, and then it becomes sort of fodder for all sorts of um, I, uh, hypotheses, some sort of fantastic ones, including that this was aliens and things like that. Um, and then from the 1950s onward, you have these annual expeditions that the Soviet Union sends out, or somewhat supports, at least, um, of people who are going there, partially interested in finding whether this was aliens. And so uh, I'm doing a sort of, you know, long-term history of uh, history of science and history of environment of this explosion and very much asking, for instance, this, a question about what does it mean sort of when human interactions with a place are shaped not by industry, not by the military, not even really by preservation, but by mystery solving, by this sort of need to, 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 and this sort of thirst, this insatiable appetite to uh, figure out a riddle. Um, And what can we sort of deduce from that as a sort of type of landscape, a mode of landscape interaction? So that's some of the driving questions um, and what I've been, working on and I'll be going, I spent some time in Moscow and Petersburg last summer and I'll be going off to uh, Tomsk and Krasnoyarsk and other parts of Siberia uh, uh, in a few months to continue research. Well, they both sound fantastic. I think you can't go wrong with Soviets and hunts for aliens. So I look forward to reading both of those. Thank you very much. And thank you uh, for for, uh, the invitation to interview me. 
It was absolutely my pleasure, Andy. Thank you so much for being on the show. That was Associate Professor Andy Bruno talking to us about his book, The Nature of Soviet Power and Arctic Environmental History, which was published by Cambridge in 2016. Thanks for joining us.